the streams and the rivers were dry. And I, it so horrified me that I came out and started painting the rocks blue to indicate that there was once a river here. And then after I got done painting the rocks, I just sort of walked over here and then did that tree and then did that tree and then I did this tree. And then pretty soon I'd done this whole forest. Uh-oh, retard alert. Retard alert, class. Welcome to the program, and yes, it's the retard alert. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, you just heard some scintillating commentary about or from someone who is so far out there that she's being given credibility in the, uh, in the media. That was E. Jean Carroll. You say, who? Well, that's what I said a few months ago. This is the gal who is suing Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, because she alleged she was sexually assaulted by him. <laughs> and if you've ever listened to any of her interviews, kind of like what you just heard there, you know that the retard alert. Uh-oh, retard alert. Retard alert class. Is definitely in vogue. She is a Looney Tune. And she's out there painting the rocks and the trees around her house. Because that's where the water was, was. <laughs> oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Our world is filled with crazy people like that. And it's all part of a worldview. And it's something I talked about before in this program before. We're lying. Cheating, stealing is in vogue. It's okay to commit libel and slander against whomever to advance whatever agenda might be out there. Well, we're not going to be doing that here today. We are taking a look at what God has to say about what it means to be a Christian, how to believe, how to think, and do it without having to invoke the retard alert. <laughs> anyway, welcome to the program. I am Dr. Paul. Glad that you're with me here for the next uh, hour, probably. As we're talking about the book of Romans, we're in chapter 12. And we're just motoring right along here. Uh, we've kind of gone from what Christians are supposed to believe to what Christians are to do. And this is the practical aspect of it. And in the previous podcast, we discussed about, or we discussed the topic of presenting yourself as a, as a living sacrifice to God. And not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, this is the only way that 
doing or thinking Christian things is going to make any sense. To, to most people, Christianity is just a bunch of nonsense. Oh, the myth, you know, Jesus was a myth. He never existed and all this kind of stuff. Uh, thereby contradicting themselves because, well, they can't go back and empirically measure any of that. It's just their opinion. And when they think say things like Jesus was a myth and the like, uh, you simply have to ask them just a few questions before they're off the rails. You know, it is nothing more than their opinion. Uh, and then you got to ask them, well, why would anybody lie about this? So, and they don't have an answer for that one either. But anyway, Paul is going to advance this practical aspect of Christianity now. Here in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, and uh, he's going to talk about being a team player. You, you say, what, what, the team player, what, what are you talking about here? I'm talking about the Christian body, the all of believers. We're all part of this great organism called Jesus Christ. Oh, an organism. <laughs> Sounds like a biology class here. No, we're not talking biology here. We're talking about unity and diversity. And inclusion, you know, from a biblical perspective. We're all part of a, a big team here as Christians, no matter where you're at in the world. Now, Paul's going to use the human body as his analogy or representation here, but I like thinking of it in team terms because having played athletics, a good portion of my life and officiating it for the rest of my life, uh, I see that only players or teams that have players that play together, that play their role, are the ones that succeed. It's not the whiners. It's not the cheaters. It's not those that try to circumvent the rules. It's those that play together with their God-given abilities, even though most of the teams out there today, no matter what it is, where you're at in the world, whether you're talking about baseball or soccer or cricket or whatever, uh, they don't give God the glory. Uh, they would just as soon get their own glory, which tells you they're not a team player. And by happenstance, they might win a couple of games along the way. Well, the analogy here applies to Christianity. We must as a body, play together. We must play our own roles because if we don't, we're a failure. We're a failure to God. We're a failure to our families. We're a failure to ourselves when it comes to living out the Christian life. Now, to some people, that's not a big deal. They don't care. And But once again, if they don't care and claim to be a Christian, they're a failure because they should care. They should care that what they're supposed to be doing, and Paul's going to get into some of these gifts here in, in this chapter here, uh, they're to do their role or play their role in a way that magnifies God, magnifies the body, magnifies someone else over themselves. So if they say they don't care, I, I would really question whether they were a Christian at all. So the Apostle Paul tells these Roman Christians here, as we're going to read through this real quick, and as I always tell you, go get your Bible. 
Now, some people might not be able to read along with me here because you're driving down the highway or something like that. That's fine. But I would still encourage you when you get to your destination or when you get five minutes or so, get your Bible out and read what we're going to read here. I want you to become familiar with what God says. Now, I might throw in a thing here or there that might be memorable. I don't know. I, I just trust God that he will lead me through this. But I really want you to focus upon what God says. Well, that's just that's just human words there. No, that's a page. On. No, 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 no. Over and over and over, we see throughout the Bible that Scripture is actually accredited to God's voice. I mean, even, even the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. So when you pick it up here, this Word that God has breathed out is spoken and is now on paper. You should pick it up and read it. It's God speaking to you. And then ask the Holy Spirit to illumine your mind to understand what you're reading. And I guarantee your life will be totally different. Oh, what about all these other books? It doesn't matter what these other books say. It doesn't matter what the biblical critics have to say. What matters is what God says to you. So get your Bible and open it up to Romans chapter 12. And let's, uh, let's read these few verses here. I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard, Standard Version. Uh, you may have something different. If it's comparable, good for you. If it's uh, something wild, uh, well, <laughs> unless you know your Greek and your Hebrew, in this case, you'd probably have to know your Greek. Uh, some of those versions can be a little on the risque side. Uh, but as long as it reads along, pretty much like what I'm reading here, you should be okay. So starting at verse 3, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Roman Christians, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what is Paul saying here? Let's kind of unravel this here a little bit and see what Paul is trying to tell us. Like I said, he's told the Roman Christians in the previous couple of verses here to have a different mind than the world has. The world is about dog-eating dog, so to speak. Uh, it's about... and I, and I I, I say this with a certain bit of caution because I understood where the guy was coming from when he said it, but sometimes people take it just a little too far, and I think they miss the point. But I remember the great Rush Limbaugh talking about how the United States was built upon rugged individualism, and that's okay to a certain degree. Yes, you should be... Uh, rugged, you should be tough when you know making your decisions and 
being decisive about it and not relying upon a government handout to get you through life. I have no problem with that. I think there is a certain amount of that 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 is true. I think it builds character when you grow up and learn how to take care of yourself and you're not standing in some line somewhere expecting someone to give to you what you could earn on your own. God has given everybody a certain degree of, of ability to do certain things, more, some more than others, a certain amount of a success and the like. But still, it's going to be up to the individual to make their determination. And then some people are so handicapped that they, well, you would think they can't do it, and you'd be amazed at what they could do. They have adapted to their their situation, and uh, sometimes uh, people with a great handicap are better at what they do than people that have their full faculties. The point is, uh, there is that certain rugged individualism, but there's certain responsibility that goes with that. But ultimately, when we're talking about a worldly mindset versus a Christian mindset, the there's a difference. I said there was two worldviews going on there. Don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking where everything is about you, me, myself, and I. Uh, going for the gusto and uh, trampling on whomever to get whatever you think you want, not necessarily what you need, versus being transformed by the renewing of your mind where other people, in fact, Paul's going to make this point in one of his other other letters over in the book of Ephesians in, in, in discussion about you know the, the gifts and the like. He makes a statement in the book of Ephesians, I think would uh, bowl well for many Christians, today, who are very individualistic. They don't want to be a part of the body. They want, to be, uh, they want to be kings and queens rather than servants. Paul told the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And really that's, you know, you want a definition of love right there. A definition of love is right there. When you're considering others over yourself, hoping for their welfare versus your own. And Paul, once again, he's going to get in more of that when he starts discussing these gifts at the tail end of our reading today. But there's this transformation. And Paul says here in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, given to him by who? Well, it's none other than God himself. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Paul is very big on grace. God's grace. You know that word that we sometimes uh, sing about, you know, uh, in in church, whether we're talking about, you know, our our salvation or uh, the glory of God or... uh, Things like that. We, we, we kind of bypass the word and we go, oh, we amazing grace, how great the sound. Okay, what does that mean? That means God's giving us something we don't deserve. And here Paul is saying, you know, by the grace that's given to me, I've got something to share with you here that will make you more in line with this renewed mind. I say it to everyone. And he's specifically talking to those in Rome because he says it's among you, that are there in Rome, the Roman Christians. It's probably both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Both are converts to Christianity. He says it to everyone. In fact, when he goes on, he says not to think 
uh, of himself more highly than he ought to think. He's already alluded to this previously because there were probably those that were in that congregation, especially among the Gentiles, that were looking down their long, pious noses at the Jews and saying, look, we've been grafted into this, this you know, olive tree because you guys, you know, screwed up. And we took your place and look at us. And Paul, Paul told them over there, don't be thinking about that because God could take you out just as easy as he took them out and he can graft them back in. It's not about you and your effort and how wonderful you think you are. It's about God and his grace and his mercy that these individuals are what they are. And that's how every Christian ought to think. It ought not to be one of these, I'm going to co-opt with God how how great my salvation is. You didn't do anything. You were a rebel. You were a coward. You were a hostile toward God before God reached down by his grace and grabbed you by the heart with his spirit and made you one of his own. And so when he says, to not think more highly than they ought to, you know, this, this uh, arrogance about themselves, this haughtiness and uh, look-at-me type of attitude. Uh, he's, he's saying, look, it's not about you. It's, it's about God. Now, hang on a second here. I got, I got my thing here. It's all messed up here. <laughs> what else is new? Hang on a second. This is the wonders of, Hang on a second. I thought I had this thing going here. Uh, I love computers. I've said this before. I love them when they work. <laughs> it's just that they don't always work. And mine's not working here right now. Isn't that lovely? Okay. But anyway, <clears throat> he says, uh, but to think with sober judgment. Literally, this word, uh, sober, sober uh, judgment here, is to think in a humble way. Think with a bit of humility. I often think in terms uh, when when I consider this type of stuff and and the in the Christian faith, where did I come from? Where did I come from? Uh, remembering, you know, what uh, my previous life was about. And it doesn't mean that everything that I say and I do is perfect. It's not. Uh, I I'm flawed just like anybody else. I'm. A, I'm a uh, someone, a, a sinner that needs to be saved by grace, just like everybody else does. But I think about my humble beginnings, and I reflect back, and I just go, "Man, I was, I was something else there. Uh, how in the world, or why in the world, God would ever want to reach down and touch me in the way that He has is 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 astounding. Most people." I don't know, today they're so concerned with the health and wealth of gospel and what they can get and and try to share that with others and you don't live, need to live in poverty and whatever and God's got a, you know, a chicken in every pot and a Mercedes Benz in every garage and I'm going, give me a break. That's not Christianity. Christianity is reflecting back, you know, as, as a Christian and seeing where you come from, not all the time, but you're looking back and you're going, that was me. I was the one with the feudal mind. I was the one who was cursing God. I was the one who was cursing mankind. I was the one who was uh, uh, lying and cheating and stealing myself. And when God got a hold of me, it's like, uh, it, it is humbling. 
Uh, and that's what Paul is really getting at here in, in verse, verse 3 here. Don't think of yourself as something that you're not, but think with sober judgment. Give credit where credit is due. Give God the glory for the great things he has done in your life. Don't think of it any other way because, you know, if you start thinking you're something when you're nothing, then once again you have failed. You're going to fail everyone around you, and people are going to start looking at you sideways. They're going to be going, oh, here we go again. Here's another one of those hypocrites in the church that I just don't want to deal with. And you know what? I can't say that I blame them. I wouldn't want to hang around you. But to think sober judgment. Literally, the word means to be of sound mind. That's literally what it means. To be safe in what you think about yourself. Uh, not much of that going around. You know, the Bible does talk about sound doctrine all the time, which leads to sound thinking. And we know that in the last days, uh, fewer and fewer people are going to be willing to think that way. Uh, the Apostle Paul, and I have brought this up before, told Timothy over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's where many a Christian is today, or at least professed Christian. They're believing everything that God said don't believe, trusting in things that God said don't trust. They're not sound in their thinking. They're not sound in their doctrine. And Paul goes on here and he says, really the, the standard by which you're going to obtain sound thinking or sound, sound uh, doctrine is by the measure of faith that's been accorded to each person by God himself. Uh, once again, the Apostle Paul, very big on grace, very big on faith. In fact, the just shall live by faith, which is the over-abiding theme of the book of Romans. As a Christian um, in the Christian Constitution, you're depending upon God for how you think. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that you know wafts through your brain is godly because you're still wrestling with the ungodly nature that God has redeemed you from. But what you're ultimately trying to do in this respect, especially when he gets ready to start talking about these gifts and sharing them or using them with others, is to think humbly, not haughtily. And so this is going to take a deal of faith. Now, this is not salvific faith. This is simply thinking as a Christian. Salvific faith, the kind that you're depending upon God uh, by his grace to redeem you, is a little bit different than the faith that springs from this, whereby you're living out the Christian Christian life. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, disciples of Jesus once asked him, increase our faith. And sometimes that comes through trial, and tribulation, and hardship, and difficulty. Uh, we saw this with the book of Job. In the, in the life of Job, we saw this with Abraham. We, in fact, we saw this in uh, some of the other characters the Apostle Paul talked about, even, the, even King David. Increase our faith. And like I said, sometimes that comes through difficulty, and 
Some people can't bear up under pressure. But that's where you ask for God to give you the faith and the strength to get through it. Here is just simply living a humble life as a Christian. Don't be arrogant. Uh, a great problem I think we have in, in Christian circles today is just the polar opposite here. We don't have the faith that we should, and therefore we end up acting, acting arrogantly because we're insecure. And I see this not only in the Christian church, I see it outside in, in walks of life where people who like to lord it over others, uh, bullying people, that's all insecurity. That's lack of faith in God that he is going to be in control. And so people take, take it upon themselves to, well, they think they're filling in the gaps, so to speak. And they think that, well, one way to be able to secure my, my lot in life is to bully somebody else. And we hear about this subject of bullying in school and stuff like that all the time. But we never come back here to what God has to say about the subject. Because much of this bullying is simply insecurity. Insecurity because people are trusting in themselves rather than God Almighty. Now, Paul moves on here to verse 4, where he really gets into the discussion about teamwork. Teamwork in the sense that we're all part of one body. Because he says, for as in one body, we have many members. He's kind of stating the obvious here. And that body here in verse 25 is the body of Christ. Not that we're some like physical entity per se uh, that that comprise like little body cells and Jesus is around us and stuff like that, but we're one body by analogy. We're one body of believers, and we have many members. I I was thinking about this in terms of the human body, and was going to look up to see just how many cells and bones and whatever, and you'd be amazed. Uh, if you've never taken the time to think about just how your body is constructed, it is bewildering. Uh, most people have uh, two hands, ten fingers, uh, two arms, and ten toes. Or, oh, ten toes. <laughs> you have ten toes on your, on your arms. You have two legs and ten toes. Uh, legs and arms and abdomen and head and hair. And it's just... Unbelievable. I think somebody said there's like 10 billion cells or whatever inside the human body. It's amazing. But it's still one body. One human body. The same analogy applies to the Christian body. There is one body. It's called Christ. And there are a plethora of members. Not all of equal standing. Not all of the same species in the sense of uh, uh, body parts. Not everything is a finger. The Apostle Paul, you know, he, he makes this point over in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 because he talks about the, the gifts as well. Uh, I flip on over there real quick. He says, uh, he says, and in fact, they, they had a problem with the, the, in the church of Corinth, over those who were saying, I don't need this body part. I don't need that body part or whatever because I'm not the foot and I'm not the eye and so on and so forth. Uh, and Paul says, wait a second here. Everybody's important. All body members are important. This is what makes the body function. If it plays its role, 
Obviously, the eye cannot hear and the ear cannot see and the eye cannot smell or touch or taste. The, the body has many members that function in different ways and they're all equally important in order for the body to function in a healthy, sound way. If we're going to talk about sound mind, we need sound body. It's when the body members start acting contrary to what their role is supposed to be that you've got major problems within the body overall. We know what cancer is to a certain degree as people try to eradicate it, which I sometimes wonder if that's really what the doctor's goal are. Uh, goal is anymore. If you eradicate the the, the disease, uh, then you lose your job. You got to go find something else to do. But that's another topic. But we know what cancer does. It's actually the body turning it upon itself. Body cells acting contrary to their normal function, and they start destroying other cells. We have a cancer in the Christian body today. In that respect, in fact, we've got many cancers that are in the Christian body today. Some of them aren't even body parts. We have a multitude of imposters that have crept in. They're like viruses and parasites that are in the Christian body today, and it's killing the body. I'm talking about the body parts that actually Christians that have bad attitudes, they have bad doctrine, they have bad practice, and it has an adverse effect upon everybody else. Don't think that it doesn't. I it, Rarely a day that goes by that I don't talk to somebody, a friend, a colleague, somebody that is maybe an acquaintance, and they talk about how the Christian church has gone awry, and they don't want to be a part. I simply try to tell them, you know, that uh, welcome to the world of Christian disenfranchisement. You're going, what? <laughs> what do you what'd you say? There are many Christians by the millions that have been disenfranchised from the Christian body. And that by sometimes I think well-meaning people, although they don't do it from a biblical perspective. Uh, in fact, they do things contrary to what the Bible has to say about how we're supposed to treat each other. People can literally, and I it kind of reminds me of a story here that I read here uh couple of weeks ago about a lady who had died. She fell into her own personal freezer, and like eight or nine years later, they finally found her. She was frozen to death in the freezer. That's how a lot of Christians are today, because Christian churches and Christians that are in the church could not give a flip about those that have been disenfranchised. They're wandering sheep. It doesn't mean they're non-believers. It means that the people in organized religion, that's a big term that gets kicked around from time to time, organized religion, don't care about them, and yet they claim to be Christians. They never visit them. They never follow up to find out where the sheep went, uh, the body part, if you will, uh, they figure that uh, life is just as well in the Christian church behind those four walls on a Sunday morning than it is with them. So they don't visit them. This is an indictment against the Christian church. We have one body. Not all the members function the same way. 
But just because they don't all function the same way doesn't mean that they are all unimportant or important. It means they are important. The little toe is just as important as the brain. Try to, I mean, if you're used to walking or running without your little toe, uh, then you suddenly have it cut off, uh, you'll find out your balance is going to be off. Uh, Move it a little bit further up the leg and cut you off at the knee, you're really going to have problems trying to walk or run in a normal way. Oh, there's always prosthetics. They're always the artificial things. But remember, the artificial are not the real thing. I'm talking about real, genuine Christians in the church. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's trying to remind the Roman Christians here, guess what? Everybody within your congregation is important, regardless of what their function is, literally what their practice is. Whether you're a a pastor or a deacon or a teacher or whatever, he's going to get into those gifts here shortly. They're all important. And it's to our detriment, and to the Christians there in Rome, it was to their detriment to exclude some in favor of others, thinking other positions were more important. And so he says in verse 5, So we, though many, being all-inclusive here, it's not just you guys there in Rome, but we, the apostles and disciples and everybody that comprises the Christian church at that time, And still even today, we, though we are many, are still one body. There's the unity through diversity. Now, you see so much of that or hear about so much of that today. It's unity through diversity. Uh, But the problem there is the way they look at it or the way they have tried to define it. It's still rugged individualism in uh, in a perverse way. But it's all kinds of garbage that has been thrown in and, 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 and judged to be good. So it doesn't matter if you're a pervert or uh, somebody who is uh, nominally straight or you're black, you're white, you're pink or green or gay. or, or uh, it's, it's just all kinds of junk. And it's been subjectively judged to being good with the exclusion of anybody who would who would say uh, or who would advocate absolute truth about anything. They want this nilly-willyism of going your own way, doing your own thing, and saying, you know what, that's that's diversity. No matter how perverted it is. And it's good. And the more diverse we are, the strong. No, you are not. That is an abject lie. Just because, you know, you have a bunch of people that are wandering in all kinds of different directions doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. In fact, in many cases, people are wandering off a cliff. And I seriously doubt that if people could see they're going over the edge of the cliff, that they'd want to go. But you've got a faction in society today that says, you know, uh, let's go ahead and jump off the cliff because we're being diverse and we're stronger for it. Well, let me just tell you, if you happen to get into a group of people who want to jump off the uh, uh, Empire State Building in New York or maybe the the New World Trade Center, go to the Observation Tower, walk off the uh, edge of the building, uh, I guarantee you by the time you hit the bottom, 
it will not be good. There will be splatters everywhere. People will die from it. And people are dying from that kind of perversity through diversity today. Paul is talking about this unity of Christian body parts, those that have been redeemed, that are doing things God's way. That's the unity through diversity in the body of Christ. When you have a sickness or you have those that are not in full compliance with you know, the Christian ideal, then you're going to have problems. And today the Christian church has major problems. Uh, it has gone the way of the world rather than being transformed from it. And uh, I, I, I just, it pains me to say that when it comes to trying to find a Bible church, there are few and far between. There's a remnant. We talked about that before on this pot. There's a remnant, but they're hard to find because they're so infected with, you know, uh, worldly thinking and bad doctrine and bad practice. They're hard to find. And I think that's going to cause the judgment of God to fall upon the church. I think probably in many ways it probably already has. But we're one body in Christ and individually members, one of another. See, this is what I had mentioned before about what Limbaugh said, we're, we're into this rugged individualism. But, the, but Paul takes this and he says we're individual members, yes, having our own function, but we have one another. We're supposed to be serving each other for the benefit of the whole body. Once again, you can't have this exclusionary, I don't give a flip attitude towards other members of the body. You're there to serve them. And it's only when we serve each other that we function in a way that is godly, is progressive in the true sense of the word, that we're building the kingdom of God. That's, that's what unity through diversity is really all about, serving other Christians within the body. And he says how we, he goes about telling us how this occurs, starting in verse 6, because he talks about these gifts that we have, this charismata, that so many get all tripped up over because they think the charismata, the, the charismatic aspect of Christianity, well, that really only deals with speaking in tongues. No, it has no such thing to do with that. That doesn't mean that people weren't speaking in tongues at one time, but even when Paul talks about that over in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a context to it. And the people who think they're doing this speaking in tongues thing today, they're deluded. They're deluded. They're thinking, you know what, this is what these spiritual gifts is about. And if you can't speak this, you can't be saved. Baloney. That's a bunch of garbage. In fact, <laughs> I saw a thing on uh, YouTube. No, no, it wasn't YouTube. Rumble. And there was this so-called prophetess. And she was on there. Oh, she is babbling left and right. Oh, she's giving you some kind of assemblies of God thing. You know, prophesying to these people who were stupid enough to keep listening to her. And I typed in a little message. I said, oh, here we go. Another blab it, grab it, false prophet. And the moderator came along and, 
and remove my comment and then block me from making any more comments. <laughs> the truth hurts sometimes. The gifts that we have are not just about speaking in tongues, if they're speaking in tongues at all. In fact, we've got the Bible here as a full revelation, and it's a closed book. There are no more revelations that are coming in behind it. And we've got the Spirit of God that is teaching us when it comes to this speaking in tongues thing, it's it's obsolete. Well, yeah, people, some people say, well, that's a way to identify if you're saved or not. Show me that from the Bible. It says no such thing. But those gifts, though, are for this benefit of others. This is how we serve other people. And Paul is going to go through some of these here. He says, having, having gifts that differ according to what again? Grace. And once again, he says that the grace, it's all about grace. Whether it has to do with uh, revealing what God has spoken to the apostles. It has to do with the gifts that are given out by the Spirit. Having these different gifts that are according to this standard of grace that's given to us. Whereas, you know, God could have given us judgment. God gives us unmerited favor. And with that favor, the, the ability to, to do certain things within the kingdom of God to the benefit of others. And so he starts listing them, and he gives us seven. Like I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's even more. But he goes through this here with the idea that Here's, here's how we're going to serve each other. This is how we're going to have unity. And you ha each have to play your role because you don't all have the same gifts. Some might only have one. Some might have two or three or four. Either way, they're for the benefit of each other within the body. So he, he turns to the first. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. But what is prophecy? And a lot of people, they'll pick up a, and this is going way back, but pick up a book on prophecy by Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, and they think that's what it's all about. It's about the book of Revelation. It's about forecasting the future, knowing what's coming tomorrow or next year. That's not all prophecy is. Prophecy, is, as I've taught in the past, is about foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling, dealing with really what amounts to solid doctrinal preaching. Proclaiming the Word of God, trying to uh, convey a message to God's people whereby they are challenged to lead the Christian life. Getting in and getting into the Bible and having God illuminate the mind of the preacher whereby he becomes God's spokesperson to God's people. It's not that they can't pick up the Bible and read it, and I've I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be encouraging people to pick up their Bible right now and read it and with the help of the Holy Spirit if I didn't think that the message couldn't be uh, conveyed to them by the Spirit of God. But when it comes to preaching, there is a different level of, of revelation, so to speak. It's more of a challenge, a more of a, come on, let's, let's, let's get our act together here. Uh, this is what God would have us to do. It is conveying the will of God. But that's foretelling. And then foretelling would deal with what's coming in the future. And right now, uh, a lot of, you just 
flip it on Rumble or to YouTube or or Instagram or whatever, and and you've got prophets out there by the by the boatload, thinking that you know what uh, I could take this uh, uh, contemporary event and twist it around and fit the Bible narrative, and maybe I'll throw in a little Nostradamus on the side, <laughs> and, and I can tell what's coming. You know, there's an asteroid's going to hit the Earth, and we're all going to die just like the dinosaurs did. Look, we have all the revelation that we need right here in the Bible. In fact, if you pick up the book of Revelation, you know the how, how it's going to end. We know that several of the prophecies about the Lord Jesus have already occurred. Uh, you don't need to be tuning into somebody that claims to be a prophet. There are plenty of them. Jesus said they would come by the droves later on, uh, causing people to wander off into heresy. All you need to do is you need to pick up the Bible here and read it or listen to those that are willing to get the Bible out here and proclaim it. You'll have all the prophecy you will need in proportion to the the, uh, the ESV here has uh, our faith, the NAS says his faith, and then the King James says of faith. But really, there is a definite article there in proportion to the faith. There is only one. He's pointing at one. That is the Christian faith. That is the faith that not only led to the redemption and regeneration of the Christian, but the one who is growing in it. And he says, you know what? Part of that comes through this gift of prophecy. And then he says in verse 7, if service uh, in our serving, uh, but what exactly does that even mean? Well, the the word here is uh, the, the same one we use for deacon, uh, diakonon, uh, diakonion, actually, in the diakonia. Uh, this is, like I said, this is the word we translate into the English deacon. Sometimes we, we see all kinds of deacons in our churches. We go, what are they doing? Well, they're supposed to be servants to have... Uh, a deacon, or for somebody to take on that responsibility should, especially if they're running for that particular uh, office, we've made it into an office, but it's actually a gift. But you don't have to be a deacon in the church to be a servant outside the church in the, in the sense that outside with those four walls, you should be serving other Christians anyway. Of course, that's going to require you know, personality and the sense of, you know, uh, knowing the welfare of your fellow believer. What do they need? In fact, every one of these gifts is designed to help somebody else. Kind of gets back to this uh, whole idea of uh, uh, having members of one another. We're there to serve each other. Sometimes we're on the down and the out. We, we either are, are depressed about something or we're physically ailing in some way. We should be there to take care of each other. But it seems like so oftentimes, though, we don't give a rip until something tragic happens. And then we want to try to close the corral gate, so to speak, after the horses are gone. It shouldn't be that way. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be tragedies or shortfalls or, 
or depressions or uh, tragedies, oh, I just said tragedies, uh, things uh, that happen in life. You know, sin is still going to have its way in our lives. But we should try to be servants at all times, handing off some of those things, maybe alleviating. You know, when, when a person uh, gets a, a disease or cancer or something like that, they always say when you catch it early, you have a better chance of survival. That's how we ought to be when it comes to serving each other. We should meet the need before it ever happens. A, a tragedy does occur because oftentimes when things happen and things die, you never get them back. But Paul says here, if you've got the gift of service, then serve. Don't wait until a tragedy takes place. Be the deacon without somebody saying, well, the deacon uh, uh, selection committee picked you. Uh, were you qualified? Or was this, uh, once again, one of these pie-in-the-sky type uh, uh, things where we can wear it as a badge of honor? it's only going to be honorable if you've got the gift to begin with. Otherwise, you're just playing religion. So you've got prophecy, you've got being a deacon, you've got service, and the one who teaches. Now, Paul had talked about this earlier uh, with, the, with the Jews. Because he says in, uh, in verse uh, 7 here, the one who teaches, and he's teaching. Teaching takes a lot of effort, and it takes a lot of responsibility. And what Paul had warned the Jews about previously over in chapter 2 was those who claimed to be teachers, but they weren't doers. Oh, yeah, they, they taught about the law, and, and uh, they, they knew the truth, and they had great knowledge and, and, and the like. But then he starts asking these, uh, these questions, you know, uh, when you teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you teach yourself? It's a kind of way of saying, you know what? If you're, if you're going to teach yourself, you're going to be more knowledgeable about something. You're going to have to do something different. And remember what he asked them after that? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, do uh, you say, uh, don't commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? You uh, abhor idols? You rob temples. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? And so on and so forth. Being a teacher takes great responsibility because you can't play the hypocrite. You are somebody that the student is looking up to as an example in your, not only in your knowledge, whether what you're saying is true, but also in your conduct. If you're going to teach, you better do it well. In fact, over in the book of James, we have this warning. Because even at that time, kind of like there are today, there are so many people that are out there teaching. Now, they don't claim to be teachers, but that's exactly what they're doing. Every time you see somebody post a video on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Rumble, they do podcasts, they're teaching. And yet many of them are hypocrites, par excellence. They're the worst kind because they don't do what they claim they're teaching. That's why James would say, not many of you. 
talking to Christians here, should become teachers. My brothers, why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you're out there teaching and you're playing the hypocrite or you're just being a liar, and I mean in the sense of you're teaching people to go astray, even though you're saying, well, my interpretation is that uh, uh, that what I said was true. You better be sure that it is. Because even Jesus, he had this to say. Uh, he said in, uh, there, there, was this, there was this discussion about the word of God passing away and uh what the role of Jesus was, and this is actually part of his Beatitudes. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish, abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and, heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. And yet how many Christians today are saying, oh, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. You need to be careful when you're teaching others, trying to persuade them to act in a certain way, what you're saying. If you're teaching heresy, that's going to come back to bite you one day especially if you're a Christian and you're saying, well, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Uh, we're under both. One is a, uh, uh, one is, you know, leading to the other. So he also then says, uh, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Well, what does it mean to exhort? Well, you know, this is an interesting word as well because uh, the word is the same one that was used of the Holy Spirit. Here it's paracolone, which Paul had even used previously in verse 1 when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, calling alongside, comforting them, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. This doesn't mean that you're taking the, these uh, Holy Spirit's place, but there is a gift of comforting that is along the same lines. Calling people alongside you during maybe their times of despair and comforting them. It is a gift. Too bad we don't have more people that do that type of a thing because once again, we're so impersonal. We're distant. And for what reason? Because we've been such hypocrites. The world knows this. We uh, uh, have problems within our lives, and rather than being comforters or those that exhort, we trash people in the church. Rather than those that bear the burdens of others, we trample on them. I recently saw, you know, something that affected the media. You know, uh, maybe some of you. Uh, and, you know, and I understand to a certain degree, you know, these guys deserve the punishment they do. But you remember Dateline years ago and Chris Hansen, you would corner these these guys that were looking for 
these uh, relationships with these teenage girls or younger, and they show up and they catch them on camera. In fact, some others have picked up this whole thing and ran with it as well, and they're doing the similar thing, cornering these guys. And those guys deserve to be in jail. Don't get me wrong. They deserve to be in jail. But what I didn't like about the whole thing and whether the 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 pervert is playing coy or or what, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to be deceptive. But what I didn't like was how Hanson and this other guy I was watching, I didn't like how they handled it. Because it was like, let's just jump on this guy and just bring out all of this garbage and sling it all over. And I remind you, you said this and you did that and you send this picture. And this guy is just, he's feeling about two inches tall. If it was genuine, I, I genuinely felt remorse for the guy because it's like, this guy did something ultra stupid and we're trying to destroy him. We're not trying to encourage him or comfort him or whatever. Uh, we're trying to destroy. I don't think that's what we should be doing if we're Christians, especially because we have that kind of we have those problems in the church. There are churches are filled with these kinds of guys and women. Oh, how dare you? No, they're in there. All kinds of sexually compromised people are in our churches. But unfortunately, we never really address that because we want to jump on them. We don't want to heal them. We don't want to encourage them. We don't want them to repent. We want to destroy them. And like I said, not that I'm saying that, the, that these individuals who are unrepentant, or even if they are repentant, do not deserve their punishment that is, that is due, some of them might even deserve the death penalty. But I don't think we should be trying to destroy them on our own by dredging up all of the refuse and, and we kind of swim around it, not for instructional purposes, but because, well, it's entertaining. And I'm thinking, how disgusting is that? It's disgusting what happened. Why are we reveling in it? So those that are, if you're a comforter, be a comforter. Sometimes that's going to be very uncomfortable for you. But just remember where the gift comes from. And then Paul says to the one who contributes, the one who's a metadidomy, well, what kind of a word is that? A metadidomy. That means somebody who gives way beyond just that 10%. He is uh, one who is also sincere in his giving because he says the one who contributes in generosity. Well, to be a metadidomy or to be one who contributes is one that is overflowing in what he gives. And he does it sincerely. He doesn't give to get something back from it. He does it because... This brings great joy and comfort to somebody else. I, I, I remember years ago, I had a friend, and uh, he, oh, he'd give, but he always expected something in return. 
of equal value, if not more. And he thought he was doing a good thing. And my thought was, what kind of giving is that? What if the person can't give anything back? What if it met the need at the moment? And there was no way of recovering what was given, whether it was money or cars or or clothing or food or what what if he can't give it back? Is that gonna go? Is he gonna hold it over him? Well, some people are that way. They or they expect some kind of a great tax deduction. And I'm going, what kind of giving is that? Now I don't want to really tie that into, you know, you know, giving like to this ministry, this podcast, you know, because I've said before, people have asked, well, how can I help to contribute? I said, go over to the, go to my website. There's a donor that I can't, I'm not going to write you out some kind of tax form and says, well, you gave whatever. Now you can claim it on your tax. I'm just, I'm not going to have anything to do with the IRS and then I'll pay my taxes. But when it comes to all that going to 5013C and all that kind of stuff and having Uncle Sam watching over everything, I, nonsense. If you want to give to this or any other ministry, that's up to you. Do it bountifully or within whatever limitation you've got, but ultimately do it sincerely. Don't be expecting something wonderful in return from the person you gave it to. Don't be like these blabbit grabbit morons that are on TV. Well, if you'll just give me $1,000, God's going to give you $10,000 back. That is a bunch of garbage. That doesn't mean that God may not bless in some other way or whatever that's totally unrelated to what you just did. But the whole idea of giving is from your own sacrifice for the enjoyment or the alleviating of problems or whatever it might be of somebody else to their benefit because you love them, because you love God. It's not about getting, it's about giving. That's what God did when he gave his only begotten son. You're to emulate that. And he's given you the gift of giving to do it. And then Paul says in verse 8, still talking about all of these gifts, prophecy and service and and teaching and, and being a comforter, somebody who gives, Then he talks about leadership. Oh, Lord God Almighty. We are, I I remember talking to a a seminary professor 20 years ago. One of the seminaries I went to in his office. And he was serving in several pastoral positions as kind of a fill-in while he was teaching full-time at the seminary. And I remember him telling me, We have a great dearth of leadership in our churches. Great dearth. That was his word, not mine. And we still do. We don't have leaders. We have panderers today. Doesn't mean they're all that way. Like I said, we still have a remnant. But many of them are just pandering, using the church to get to the next level. I've seen this since the days I first walked into Bible college, good grief, 30-some years ago, more than 30 years ago, more, yeah, more than 30 years ago. I've seen more frauds 
walk out of Bible colleges and seminaries into church positions than probably, I don't know, anybody else, probably. They use the church to advance their own cause. They're not, they, and I always thought it was interesting, sickening, when they, when they tell, uh, when they get up and give their so-called testimony, I've been led to this church, and they're gone in two years. Well, if you've been led there, obviously I'm assuming that you, you're saying God led you there, then why aren't you still there? Why aren't you building it up? Why aren't you tending to the sheep where you're at? If that's where God's called, well, because God changed his mind, he moved me over here. Well, is it the same? It was a lateral move. Did that church? No, it was bigger and better. And the next one's bigger and better after that. And ultimately, I don't want to do this anyway because I want to go do something else. That is, that's not leadership. Our churches are suffering from a great dearth of leadership. And why? Because of what Paul's saying here. Because he says, you know, if you're going to lead, do it with zeal. And literally, you know, the word lead you know, means to stand before. People today don't stand. <laughs> I remember, and I just read here something here uh, in the last couple of days, we were talking about uh, deconstruction and all that kind of stuff. Winston Churchill saying, you know, it's not that people don't believe in God. Uh, that that they're going to believe in nothing. It's going to believe in anything. That's what we've got going on in the church today when it comes to leadership. There's no one that's standing before God and saying, this is the way. We've got panderers. We've got cowards. We've got cheats. We've got liars that are pretending to be something that they're not standing in our pulpit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then I read accounts of, oh, well, these pastors are, they're depressed about, I'd be depressed too if I was doing what they were doing. Because it's a lie. And they know it. But once again, why is that? Because they don't do it with zeal. Oh, you say they're not excited about it? Oh, I'm absolutely positive they were excited at first. But in an emotional zeal, an emotional impulse to go doing what they're doing, I can get uh, get paid to do this. And if I... If I really do it good enough and I, and I uh, uh, fluff up my resume, I might be able to get paid more at the next job and the next one. And then maybe I can become the president of the convention. All ulterior motives. That's not leadership. It's pandering. The whole idea of, of zeal here, the, uh, the word is spude. And it literally means to be somebody who does it with diligence. They are focused like a laser on what they're doing. Nothing is going to get in their way. And some people say, but, but Paul, you're, you're being so hard. Well, why are you doing this? It, you're ramrodding these people. Uh, it's just not fair. You're, you're being a defense. You're a hard man, Mr. Anderson. It's a hard life. That's right. The Christian life is a hard life, especially when it comes to ministry. And you're not focused on what you're doing. 
You're always looking for the bigger prize. You're serving without conviction. If you tell me that that's where you're supposed to be because God called you there, then you attack that like, like some people use as an illustration. You are t- attacking hell with a, with a squirt gun. You lead by example. You don't use people to advance your own narcissistic career. You are a servant of servants. You're not there to be served. And then he says, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we talked about mercy before. Mercy being one of those things where people are not getting what they deserve. There are people who are suffering all kinds of maladies, whether they're spiritual, physical, mental, moral, and there's going to have to be intervention on their part. Otherwise, the devil will just destroy them. And ultimately, since God can't, or the devil can't destroy God, he goes after God's people. Well, there are those that have this gift of mercy that can act as those that intervene in their behalf. Maybe bring an encouraging word that will alleviate some of that. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. But they're to do it with cheerfulness. The, the word here, helasterion. Uh, wait, wait, no, it's... I was going to say helasterion is helarades, which is a, is a derivative of that. It means to be somebody who, somebody said, well, it means to uh, uh, be someone who, who laughs hysterically. Well, I don't know about laughing hysterically, but I think when you approach somebody who is in dire straits and they need an act of mercy in their behalf, sometimes just a, a smile <laughs> on your face will go, you know, great lengths. You're doing it for the right motives, the right reasons to help that person. (laughs) Once again, my computer's messing up. Okay. Well, I guess that's a good way to say, you know what? It might be just about time to uh, wrap this one up. Sorry about the, uh, the way this one's ending here. Like I said, I love computers when they work. This was not working so well. So let's just stop right here. The The whole idea, though, behind this is team play. We need to play our roles if we're Christians and serve each other in the body of Christ with the right motives, the right ambitions, the right zeal for the right goal, which is ultimately, ultimately the glorification and honor of God. Paul is taking this and giving us the practical aspect of what happens when our minds are transformed. Transformed from what we think we're going to get in the world to transforming to what we're going to be giving in the Christian life. Two completely different worldviews. And I hope you're challenged by that to press on and do those very things. You've got the gifts. Use them to the benefit of others. 
Well, I'm once again, I'm glad that you're here with me today. If you have any questions, it's uh, podcast at capro.info. I'll try to get back to you as quickly as I can. Until then, you take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.